You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. If you would, stand with me as we honor the reading of Scripture together. just want to read the, the prologue in the Gospel of John. Again, we did this... Uh, we did this last week, even though we're going to focus our attention on just a, a small portion of it. Uh, this morning, I want you to get the, the picture of this prologue. So, John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the Son, the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. You may be seated. What a a tremendous and rich text. And last week, we started looking into John's gospel. We started looking into these these 18 verses. We called it the prologue, where John really introduces the reader to Jesus Christ. And this is one area where the Gospel of John is is unique from the others. In our introduction to Jesus, we first read that Jesus is God. Last week we said that that Jesus is eternally pre-existent. He was eternally with God and eternally was God. It seems as though the first verse is just hammering this home. Jesus is God. He claimed to be God and is exactly who he claimed to be. One of the the things that that came up last week when we were talking about the the word logos, translated word there in John 1, was that the word was that that word incarnate. I used the, the phrase, Jesus was God's word incarnate. Let me pause just a second. I, I did. I, I printed off sermon notes. I don't know if you got them, um, but I left them in the copier. So if you want them, 
Here's how you get them. BethelMBChurch.org slash notes will get you them. Um, or Julie's running to, to do something. But, uh, sorry about that. But you can get them on your, on your phone, your mobile device, if you just, BethelMBChurch.org slash notes will get you there if you want to look. Can't fill them in that way, but you can see them. So the, the idea here is that God's word creates, right? It, it accomplishes it, its purpose. It, it doesn't return void. Jesus then is, is God's word incarnate or in flesh. And this really shouldn't sound strange because we, we just read the, the whole prologue here. When we get to verse 14, we read pretty much exactly this, that the word became Flesh dwelt among us. We've seen his, his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, <clears throat> really, we're, we're skipping some 1 1 to 1 14 this week. We're going to go back, we're going to get the, the rest of the full picture. But last week, we saw Jesus as, as divine. <clears throat> we focused on the fact that he was God. But we want to notice and pick up on the fact that this text also focuses on the fact that, that he was a man. And we really want to understand that, that phrase, he became flesh and, and dwelt among us and what that means. And also what it, what it doesn't mean. On social media this week, I saw a post about fundamentalism and I got thinking about uh, that movement. So that's, that's why I'm using this as an illustration. It's on my mind. But the post explained uh, a painted fundamentalism in a very negative light, and I and I would admit that the connotation of that word anymore is is very negative. Uh, it, it lends itself to mental images of an old man pointing his finger at somebody and telling them how wrong they are. Now, it, it seems in, in some circles, if you disagree with somebody, calling them a, a fundamentalist is one of the the worst things that you can do. In our world today. Of course, like many terms, though, fundamentalism should be understood, first of all, in its historical context. I'm not going to take time to, to really get into this a whole lot here, and you'll see why I bring this up, though, in a moment. But there was a time in the church in the late 19th, earliest, early 20th centuries within uh, evangelicalism where uh, there were people, schools of thought, certain schools uh, were, were started, professors were denying fundamental truths of the Christian faith. So you kind of see within the name fundamentalism here. So fundamentalists said, basically, there were five fundamentals of the faith. The deity of Christ, the virgin birth, or that Christ was human. That's two of the, two of the five. That's two things that we're looking at right away in, in the Gospel of John. The other three are the inerrancy of Scripture, the physical resurrection of Christ, and the substitutionary atonement. But just think about this for a moment. I'm not saying that you should go around calling yourself a fundamentalist. There's a lot of baggage with that term. It's often associated with extremism. My, my point is that there were those that were denying the essentials of the Christian faith. These were the, the theological liberals or uh, the modernists. They were called questioning. They were poking at the miracles and the key doctrines of the Bible, explaining away, uh, for instance, Jesus turning water into wine, healing the blind man. They would explain away the, the virgin birth. They would question that Jesus was, was God. 
They would talk in, in circles all the while claiming to be evangelicals. They, they said they, they believed the gospel. They believed the gospel should be proclaimed so they were rightly evangelical. But at the same time, they were denying these things. So fundamentalists came along and said, wait a minute, there is a point in which one, even though they claim to be a Christian, claim to be an evangelical or not because they deny truths that are so that are required to be a Christian. And they said these are, these are the fundamentals. At the time, uh, J. Grisham, Grisham Macon uh, wrote a small book called Christianity and Liberalism. Uh, it, it's such a good book. It's like he wrote it yesterday. It's a small book. You can pick it up and read it in not very long. Um, he says this, In the sphere of religion, as in other spheres, the things about which men are agreed are apt to be the things that are least worth holding. The really important things are the things about which men will fight. These fundamentals, these five items, these areas that were so important, like other important things, they were things that Christians said we ought to fight over. Fundamentalists today are seen as people that will fight over every little jot and tittle. They fight over things that don't matter, things that don't make, that don't, that third tier issues. That's how fundamentalists are seen. But here, these were the fundamentals of the faith. And if there was agreement on these things, if there was agreement on uh, the virgin birth, the humanity of Christ, the deity of Christ, there would be no need to adopt fundamentals. There would be no need for that movement. They would be assumed as fundamental, and they should have been. Notice that these things that prompted the fundamentalists or these fundamentals are things that John takes up right away in his gospel. Not all of them in the first couple verses, but the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ. Now, we said before that in John there was no birth narrative. That doesn't mean that John didn't believe that the humanity of Christ was inconsequential. The fact is, in verse 14, we see very clearly that the humanity of Jesus was extremely important. At Christmas time, right, we, we go to Luke and we read Luke's account of, of Jesus' birth. We focus our attention on his humanity. He was born. From that gospel, we often go back to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Notice the verse teaches that Jesus will be born. Like every other human being, he was born. This man will be Mighty God himself. Both truths affirmed there in one verse. In Romans 1, where Paul starts his, his great treaty on, on the gospel, he affirms that Jesus was a descendant from David according to the flesh. In other words, he was a real human being. But he's also declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Again, both truths are affirmed there. I hadn't thought about this, but one commentator pointed out that in the second chapter of John, where Jesus turns water into wine, Jesus was at a wedding. What is more human than that? That he find himself at a wedding 
And when the family finds the wine to be exhausted and is about to be embarrassed, Jesus makes new and better wine of the water that had been there in pots used for Jewish washings and purifications. That was the action of the divine. Again, point out clearly from the Old Testament throughout the New Testament, we see these truths and often we see them right beside one another. That's why I wanted to focus our attention on verse 14 this morning, even though we were skipping a little bit, because I wanted to set these truths right beside one another, so to speak. So why are these truths so important? The fact is, our salvation hinges on both of them. If Jesus were not divine and were not God himself, he could not have borne our penalty or the penalty of God's wrath for us. He could not have overcome death. If he wasn't perfectly human, he would not have been a suitable sacrifice. Since we looked at Jesus' divinity last time, let's ask that question a little bit differently. Why is it so important that we affirm the humanity of Jesus? Why is it so important that we say he took on flesh, that we develop a doctrine of the incarnation? We answered that a little bit, but I think it would be good for us to flesh that out a little bit. No pun intended. But there are a number of reasons that the incarnation is crucial. The first reason that we need to mention is that Jesus' humanity, the incarnation, made, it, made him capable of dying. In Hebrews 10, the author is thinking about this when he says that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. He then goes on to say that Christ came in the world to do the will of the Father. I, I love how the author of Hebrews says this. He says, therefore, when Christ came into the world, he, Christ, said this, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me, me is Christ, with burnt offerings and, and sin were offered, you were not pleased. Then I, Christ, said, here I am. It is written about me, Christ, in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. In other words, his will involved a body that was able and capable of dying. It's pretty clear from the, this that Jesus was capable of dying because he had a real body. He was human. Now, there have always been those who question this. They say, wait a minute. Jesus was divine. He appeared to be human. In fact, we see that even some of the New Testament books were written with this kind of teaching in mind. First John, Colossians, for instance. The, the Gnostics in the second century said that Jesus couldn't have been human because for the body was a prison for the soul. For Jesus to take on flesh, for him to have a body, would mean that he was corrupt in some respect. What wasn't corrupt is the non-physical part of the human. So Jesus must have appeared to be human. The problem with this kind of thinking is that if Jesus only appeared to be human, then his death was only the appearance of a death. It wasn't real death, and our sins weren't really dealt with on the cross. Think about it this way. Remember uh, Dr. Maynard Seaman, he was, uh, when I first started here, he was uh, a retired medical missionary that came and helped out 
He was called to do medical missionary work on the other side of the world. He wanted, he was willing to go. He knew that he wanted to go to to Nepal uh, from the time that he was a young boy. Desire and willingness in his life were one thing. Getting trained to go there was another. The only way he could go there was to become a medical missionary, to become a doctor. So he submitted himself to years of training to become a doctor, to go and fulfill that calling to go. But not only did he learn to be a doctor, he was also trained theologically to do the task that God had called him to do. It's a Byron Bible camp, by the way, that he was called to go. This is how it was for Christ. In the beginning, in the eternal counsel of God, before there was a world, before there was anyone to redeem, Jesus knew that his purpose was to go and to redeem fallen humanity. So in the fullness of time, Jesus took on flesh so that he could offer his body as a sacrifice to for sin. Jesus came to die, and the incarnation made that possible. Secondly, Jesus became a a man to know and experience life as a human being. Taking on humanity made it possible for Jesus to know and to understand what it was to be a human in all of our weaknesses. Again, the author of Hebrews in chapter 4 says that we do not have a high priest that is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Sometimes we we look at this and we we focus our attention on that. Jesus was tempted but did not sin, and we make Jesus into a, a superhuman. He could withstand temptation because he was God. The point I think the author of Hebrews is making is that Jesus was completely human, and he understands what it is to be human. He understands. He knows our experiences because he lived it. He knows what it is like to be weak. He knows what it is like to be frail. He saw good people make mistakes. He saw them fall into sin. He knows and experienced what it is to be a human in a way that we can understand. I'd say that this is seen most clearly in the the passion experience of Christ, his final hours before his death, and the suffering that he endured there. J.B. Phillips, a, a Bible translator, said, this of his experience in translating the Gospels. He said this, and I quote, kind of a long quote, but I think it's worth it. The record of the behavior of Jesus on the way to the cross and of the crucifixion itself is almost unbearable, chiefly because it is so intensely human. If, as I believe, this was indeed God focused in a human being, we can see for ourselves that here, There is no play acting. This is the real thing. There is no supernatural advantages for this man. No celestial rescue party delivered him from the power of evil men. And his agony was not mitigated by any superhuman anesthetic. We see, we can only guess what frightful anguish of mind and spirit wrung him from the terrible words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But the cry is, it is not finished, cannot be one of despair. It does not even mean it is all over. It means it has been completed. And the terrifying task of doing God's will to the bitter end had been fully and finally accomplished. James Boyce says that it is 
the suffering of Jesus that enables us to know that Jesus experiences all that we experience. The weariness, the disappointments, the misunderstandings, the pain of this life. And so is able to understand and help all those who are his own and so tempted. The third thing that we want to mention about the importance of the incarnation of Jesus is that his taking on flesh provided us with an example to follow. An example of how a a life that is pleasing to God should be lived. Right? Example is important. It's one thing to have a, a list of rules, to have a list of thoughts, to have somebody tell you this is what you should do, but it is, it's another thing to have a, a good example to follow. This is one reason that God has given us parents, right? To, to guide us, to give us an example to follow. The Old Testament, the New Testament is full of advice for parents. We know that we also live in a world that is filled with sin, a world where even the best examples, the best parents are not perfect. We live in a world where it's commonplace for children to grow up uh, never knowing a father or a mother, having a a parent that, that doesn't want anything to do with them, Some parents are are so involved in dealing with their own struggles and and issues that their example to their children is, is poor, to say the least. We know that this is not the way it should be. But we also must remember when it comes to the standard that God desires and, and wants from us, no person can live up to that standard. Those examples serve a purpose to point us to Jesus Christ, right? Even, even the best parents must admit that they are wrong. They must admit their weakness. They must point their children to Jesus. I, I remember intensely the, the first time in my life when I had to go one evening to my then, I don't know, five-year-old and say that even dads make mistakes. I mean, I, I was wrong. I've had to do that several times, but but it isn't, Enough just to admit our mistakes and and try to to remedy them. Part of that is is looking to the one who is our perfect example. The fact is our Christian life is constructed around the person of Jesus Christ. It's modeled around him. That fact that we see his example on, on how he handled situations, how he interacted with other people. Right? We we need examples. We need good examples. We should want and and to desire to say with the Apostle Paul, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We need to be really careful here too. Right? The sole purpose of of Jesus' life and ministry isn't just to be an example. That's moralism and not Christianity. We must remember that Jesus came to die, and the reason that he is such a good example is precisely because of that vocation. He came to live a perfect and obedient life to the law and became that example for us because he was living for us. He was excelling in areas for us where we would fall short. 
He would ultimately die and bear the, the weight of our penalty where he excelled and we fell short. He lived for us. It's called the active obedience of Christ. Jake Grisham Mason writes this. He says, the truth, the truth is that the life purpose of Jesus, divorced, discovered by modern liberalism, is not the life purpose of the real Jesus, but merely represents those elements in the teaching of Jesus, isolated and misinterpreted, which happen to agree with the modern program. It is not Jesus, then, who is the real authority, but the modern principle by which the selection within Jesus' recording teaching has been made. Certain isolated ethical principles of the Sermon on the Mount are accepted, not at all because they are the teaching of Jesus, but because they agree with our modern ideals. In other words, we need to be careful that we don't just take those elements of Jesus' life that, that fit into our own purposes and our own programs. We actually see this happening a lot today and we need to be really careful. Jesus is the authority. He isn't there just to justify our own purpose and our own program or what we think is right, whatever that might be. A fourth item that we should mention here about the importance of the incarnation is that in the incarnation, Jesus sanctified human life. It's in Christ Jesus that we see uh, the sanctity of human life in a way that had never been seen before. Just think about what life was like before the coming of Christ. Life was cheap. Romans were crucifying criminals left and right. There were wars. There was crime. People used other people. After Christ, the more we see people and nations depart from biblical values, we see life cheapened. We see crime. We see the abuse of power. We see more war. We see glaring examples of this. Like a, a man on the, on the ground with another man's knee on his neck for several minutes, depriving him of the ability to breathe. People would not do these things if they really valued life. But life today is, is cheap for most. Abortion is another glaring example. So where the, the George Floyd murder was especially tragic because he was in the, the custody of one who was there to, to serve and to protect. A child, too, is in the custody of another. Their mother. And whatever is going on in that person's life does not give them the right to end the child's life. When one watches the, the George Floyd video, one cannot understand or, or comprehend what is going through that police officer's mind. Why he's doing what he is doing. You're left wondering what could be going through his mind all that time. And, and really it doesn't matter because there's nothing in the end that can mitigate what he was doing to that other human being. The same is true for abortion. It really doesn't matter. What circumstances led to that life within her, there's nothing that justifies murder. And I'm not suggesting that situations are, these situations are, are easy. 
But there, there are some women that, that choose abortion because of some horrible thing that has happened to them. Don't want to minimize that. Right? Rape, incest. Those things are, are horrible. And there is another example of how we see life being cheapened today. There's nothing that justifies treating another human being that way. There's also nothing that justifies the termination of a human life in that manner. All around us is the cheapening of human life. Watch the news for any amount of time, and you'll see example after example. Whether it is a woman or a man beating a child to death not too far from us, a young man carelessly shooting a gun at a driving car, or a man assaulting a woman and then leading police on a high-speed chase. There's a lack of sanctity of human life in our world. Notice something else here. That we're talking about human life being cheapened. We're not talking about plants. We're not talking about animals. We're talking about the human race. People. Not interested in the color of the victim's skin. Not how old they are. Not weeks, not months, not decades. It doesn't really matter. We're talking about the value and dignity of human life. So what offsets that? What offsets? What gives life value? What offsets the cheapening of human life that we see all over in our culture? At every turn, in various ways. I would suggest that it's the value that the Christian faith brings to it. We need to understand that we value human life because, first, God gave it. John 1.3, all things were made through him. All life has its origin in him. Therefore, just it's inherently valued. There's non-Christians that believe that. God created all things, therefore life has value. Second, Christianity, though, values human life because the Lord sanctified it by assuming a full human nature, by taking on flesh, by the incarnation. In other words, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, became like you. When I say he became like you, I mean he became a human being. James Cohn one whom some big-name Christians are telling you you ought to read these days, who is a professor at one of the most liberal seminaries in the United States. Actually, fundamentalism, which we mentioned earlier, became a, a thing largely because of what was going on at that time in, in Union Theological Seminary. And some of the professors there, it's been a trail of radical liberalism ever since. For instance, in a somewhat recent chapel, September of last year, they filled the room with plants and had students confess to them. And they were largely mocked because of that. Um, anyway, James Cohn said this. He says, Jesus is not a human being for all persons. He is a human being for oppressed persons whose identity is made known in and through their liberation. This is what they call liberation theology. It, it, I mean, there's something to this. For instance, all people are in bondage to sin. They need liberation. Paul made it very clear in Romans. Both Jews and Gentiles are in the same boat. 
We're all under sin. We're all in need of being set free or liberation. I would agree. Or I would suggest that where Cohen is, is right is he said that Jesus is a human being. But where he radically misses the point of the incarnation is when he says that Jesus Christ wasn't a human being for all. One of the important aspects of the incarnation is that Jesus took on flesh and became like you. He, God, understands you. He knows you. That gives value to life, doesn't it? He was part of the human race, just like you. He became human. And please understand this, that Christ identifies with you. He knows what you're going through. Not because of the color of your skin, not because of your socioeconomic status, not because he took on, but because he took on flesh. He became a person like you. Some would suggest that, that Jesus cared more for one group than another. And it's true, Jesus did have harsh words for the religious elite. He had harsh words for the wealthy. But when Nicodemus came to Jesus, Jesus didn't turn him away. He had a gospel conversation with him. And it's in the context of that conversation that we find John 3.16. The most memorized verse. A verse that is used mostly in gospel conversations. The rich young ruler came to Jesus asking about eternal life. Jesus did not turn him away. It was the man who walked away sad. But the fact is, Jesus invited him to be his disciple. He declined. Rich, poor, popular, an outcast, a criminal on the cross next to Jesus, a Jew, a Gentile, black. I mean, the list goes on and on and on of categories we could place ourselves in. The truth of the incarnation of Christ is that Christ identifies with you because you are human. And this truth adds great value to human life. Human life isn't cheap. It isn't cheap because the God of the universe became a human and identifies with us. You see, here's just a, a, a glimpse, just touching the, the surface of the importance of, of verse 14. That the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He dwelt among people of human being people. Give them a, an example to follow. To be the one who would die for their sins. Taught them to value life. So we see that Jesus took on flesh to die. Took on flesh to know and experience life as a human being. To be an example and to sanctify life. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.